everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. On today's episode, you're going to meet Jessica Noonan. She is the co-chief executive officer of Caminar Latino. And although Jessica and I have never met in person, I did know her mother, Julia Perea, one of the co-founders of Caminar Latino, along with Sister Barbara Harrington. So Julia and I went to Georgia State together. We were in several uh, community site classes. Julia graduated with a PhD in clinical community psychology, having started Georgia State with no degree at all. She started with her bachelor's degree and worked her way through while raising five children, five. I only had three. So Sister Barbara asked her one day, and you're going to hear this story, to help do a support group for Hispanic women who were in uh, abusive relationships. And from that was born the organization uh, that is today Kaminar Latino, Latinos United for Peace and Equity. So it's really grown. It's quite the legacy. Now, uh, the word Kaminar means to walk in English, but that's really not the meaning of the organization. So Jessica told me after our conversation that originally they were called Latinos, uh, families at risk, Latino families at risk. That was the original name of the organization. And that just obviously didn't fit. So the translation actually means Latino journey. And from early on to now, the mission, the vision, the value, I should say, of the organization is to really walk with those they serve. Now, a lot of us talk about that probably very few of us do that to walk with those we serve. So welcome to the Latino journey and this conversation with Jessica of Caminar Latino. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. I am so excited to have Jessica Newton with me today. So welcome, Jessica, to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate being, being invited to be a part of it. I'm, I'm very honored. Oh, thank you so much. So you and I were just chatting about, um, you know, being a mom and having kids and how no matter what you accomplish or what kind of degrees uh, you get, what letters behind your name, your kids still think of you as mom. And you have a mom that I knew very well. I went to Georgia State with your mom, Julia Perea, and she was the uh, one of the co-founders of Caminar uh, Latino. You'll have to excuse my mm -hmm. um, my terrible, terrible Spanish. Caminar Latino. Uh, that she <laughs> well, uh, there's a story there that uh, that she co-founded with Sister um, Barbara, and I um, wanted to invite you on to talk about the good work that that you all do. Um, I probably should explain my um, why I said what I said. <laughs> so I've been trying to use, uh, to learn rather Spanish my whole life, Jessica, my whole life. And when I was in high school, my high school Spanish teacher stood in front of the whole class, including the quarterback that I had a big crush on and announced that I had the worst Southern Spanish accent she had ever heard in her life. Yeah. I can completely and totally relate to that. Oh, really? How? Yes. So uh, years ago, there was multiple times where my mom and I would present together at conferences. And so uh, because we had different last names, um, it, people didn't really sometimes know. But when they did, there was one time where we, we were presenting. And so 
people always said that my mom had an accent, but I never heard it. But, you know, she she did her part. And then often I'm like, hey, my name's Jessica Noonan. And, you know, you just kind of feel people were like, how is that possible? How in the world can a Latina have such a Southern daughter? And I was like, this is what happens when you end up being raised in the South. And so my husband, who's Russian, actually has a much better Spanish accent than I do because of the impact of me just growing up here and how much it has kind of been incorporated into the way I speak. Well, one, I don't think you have as thick a sub Southern accent is probably I do. And mine is probably worse because I grew up in Florida and then moved to Georgia. I don't think you have a, a thick accent at all. And your, your mom was a uh, Colombian, right? She was born in Bogota. Yeah. Right. So, and she had a lovely, lovely voice, but anyway, I digress. So that's how I knew your mom. And I think I mentioned, um, I was actually on the way to a conference one time. She was on her way to the same conference and I'm going down the aisle of the airport and I look, I'm looking at my seat and I'm like, oh my God, that's holy And I got to like, oh my God, it was such a special, special time. So um, we could go on and on about being a mom and your mom, but let's talk about the work. I want you to start uh, with the history of uh, coming our Latino because not, not only your, was your mom amazing. Like we had that conversation about how she started uh, working uh, on her bachelor's degree after uh, your parents got divorced and she worked all the way through. And oh my gosh, I had three. She had five, right? Five. You have four siblings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then she did this thing that is amazing. So tell us about Kaminar Latino. Uh, the history, who you serve, all the things. One, of course. So um, as I had mentioned, basically, I, when my parents divorced, she had started off as a freshman in college. And at the same time, she basically was kind of, uh, she was also still active in the faith community. And especially at that time, my sister and I were at Catholic school. And so she had an ongoing relationship with the faith community. And so there was uh, none who knew her and knew her background in terms of being from Columbia. And the nun herself, Sister Barbara Harrington, she was doing mobile health care services. And what she was seeing is, is um, a lot of Latina women who were experiencing violence and there were not really being resources to provide support to them. And so Sister Barbara approached Julia, who again, she knew was originally from Columbia. Um, she was working on her PhD in psychology at the time and said, hey, listen, I have, you know, um, this is a need. And so if you could just do a monthly support group, Spanish speaking support group, I would greatly appreciate it. And so again, being from, from the Latino culture, you can't say no to a nun. And so. <laughs> and even when you're not, just let me just say that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so and so that was really how it started was as was a request from 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 Sister Barbara. But at the same time, um, we had been very open and honest saying this is not really an area that I'm familiar with, because at that time she was really focusing on the homeless community in, in Atlanta. And so Sister Barbara had said, don't worry, the women will will help to to guide your work. And so. Mm -hmm. Shortly after, um, we at first thought that the issue was language, that if we 
provided Spanish um, or support groups in Spanish, then we would convince them to leave their partners and then problem solved. And what we quickly realized was, was that it wasn't so much the language, it wasn't just providing services in Spanish, but really and truly how we saw our partnership and our work with the survivors. And what we started realizing is, is that it wasn't feasible for a lot of the survivors to leave their partners, whether it be because of financial reasons, documentation, the fact that they loved their partner, they just wanted the violence to stop, and also that it wasn't our place to tell them that they needed to leave their partner. Because all that was doing was really um, transferring the power from the aggressor to ourselves and still having giving the impression that the survivor couldn't make her own decisions and really had no no say or did, didn't know what was best for, for her own life. And so as soon as we really kind of shifted our way of working and seeing it as a partnership and seeing the survivors as experts, that was where I really believe that Caminero Latino was born. And so between 1990 and 1995, um, we continued that work. So a few years after we, we had initially started the groups, um, the survivors had said that their children also needed services, not just babysitting, but instead uh, to really address the violence that they, they were being exposed to. So what happened is that in 1993, three years after we, we had started our work, the women had requested that we provide support and intervention services to their kids to really address the violence that they, they were exposed to. And so that's how our youth program started. In 1995 was when uh, basically the survivors said that they really appreciate, again, the work that we were doing with them, but it didn't make any sense that we were only working with one half of the couple, that it was important that their partners also knew about domestic violence and why it was wrong. Because again, for a variety of different reasons, the women didn't want to leave their partners, they just wanted the violence to stop. And so for them, it was more along the lines of to create sustainable change, it was important that we worked with each part of the family, not family counseling, but instead providing that opportunity for a family to come to one place and each receive the support that they needed. That, uh, it was so, radical at the time I because I remember during because I was working on another project uh, when I was at Georgia State um, it was with men stopping violence and um, the idea that you would even work with uh, men was unique in itself the idea that you were not telling women to leave their partner I think that's still kind of a, a little bit of a radical idea right because from our maybe um, white dominant culture, right? That's, that's well, why doesn't she just leave? That's, that is the typical reaction I think a lot of people would have, correct? Exactly. And so, yeah, and I, I think there was a lot of pushback. I, I don't think that was like widely accepted in the field. Am I, am I remembering wrong? Oh no, you, you are completely right. Cause I think that for so long, it was also, does, does it even make a difference working with, with aggressors? Like, are they really, you know, do, do they really want to change? And also for people who are outside of the domestic violence arena, it was very easy to say, why doesn't she just leave? Not knowing the dynamics of domestic violence and knowing that the most 
dangerous time for survivor is when she chooses to leave and that's where basically the chances of homicide or harm coming to her greatly increase because the aggressor feels like he has lost control of the city or he yes he has lost control of the situation and so it had it was really easy for people to um to basically say she she should just leave but instead again based on our philosophy and our um and our dedication our commitment to really seeing the survivors as experts it was important that we also listen to them about what was realistic they knew their day-to-day -day life and they knew what was a good idea or what was a bad idea and then in reality from a equity standpoint it was also not an easy thing because we're talking about survivors who may have been documented survivors who were mon monolingual in spanish survivors who did not have the same access to financial assistance there were a multitude of different reasons where it was not it was not a realistic option to leave the partner because once your 30 days were up in, in the shelter what support was there and so and so that was really that that really kind of i think drove the organization's commitment to honor the suggestions and the voices of the survivors, even though there was a lot of pushback from, from the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you also have the, uh, the extra added layer of, I would assume, and maybe this is a wrong assumption that most of uh, the families were Catholic. Yes, definitely. Right, mm -hmm. and I can say that because I am Catholic. So. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, so I can kind of, you know, so there's that that um that religious uh that spirituality that 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 pull to keep the family together. The other part that we haven't even talked about is if I remember back in the 90s, especially the early to mid 90s, um there was uh something happening in uh law, law enforcement. So if they arrested the man, a lot of times they would arrest the women as well and then kids ended up in foster care right because you're exposing your child to violence so that is abuse and neglect and so there was that kind of you know systems level pushback definitely and i think that that was one thing that we really it wasn't it wasn't a strategic plan like it's not, some of our best programming and milestones in our organization's history has just been by by chance in a way, like there was no strategic planning in it. And so even when we decided in 2018 to bring on a national arm, it was under the realization that no matter how hard some of these families worked to not have violence occur or to increase their well-being and their, and their safety, that if there wasn't change on the systemic level, then it was going to make it really difficult. And I think that that DFAS, for example, our Department of Family and Children's Services, the idea of failure to protect, it sounds good in theory, but at the same time, it is still putting the onus and responsibility of the survivor basically at fault instead of saying she is trying to protect her kids and research has shown, but the research wasn't as prevalent in, in the 90s about the impact of separating kids from from their parents mm -hmm. and so and yes you it's always preferable to have a child living in a house without violence but at the same time you know if you take them away from their mom 
that has also shown to have a lot more impact. And so, so I think that I think that through our work, we've really kind of seen the the difficulties, the challenges, and changes to assumptions and beliefs that are necessary in order to really create this change. So what comes to my mind, and I'm kind of, you know, bouncing because um, this could not have been well accepted. One of the things that I'm trying to do on the podcast is really a highlight community leaders who are doing the hard work of social change. And this is, uh, but when we actually change systems and the way we think and do, we are going to get pushback. I can imagine that other community agencies in this space must have not been pleased. Right. Oh, and I, okay. I, yeah. So let's start there. And then I want to talk about the fathers and how that happened. Of course. So, what, so basically, again, since this was in the mid nineties, um, the idea about providing services to the individuals who use violence was was just not 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 heard of. And then to have it going on at the same time and the same location, it didn't matter that they weren't all together, was terrifying. And again, it was understood in some ways about people's reservations because it wasn't it wasn't kind of the approach that people had used for for mm -hmm. so long, and it went against everything that really we we had thought about domestic violence in terms of, okay, in order to protect the survivor and the kids, we have to make sure that there's no contact at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, the way to do is just to, to, to work with them and, and that, that, that that's going to be successful. And so at that point, there was concern from domestic violence organizations, um, organizations that were working with the aggressors, basically you name it, they had concerns in terms of you guys are going to get the women killed. And they, it really required um, a commitment, again, in terms of staying true to what we have found in our own work and really kind of leaning on the power and privileges that we had within the organization. And, and my mom, you know, with her being a clinical community psychologists having respect in the field, it made it easier because she knew that her talking about it would be, it wasn't that it was going to be automatically accepted, but there was a better chance of what her recommendations, because she did have the credentials mm -hmm. versus one of our team members who was in the thick of things, who knew the same stuff, but at the same time, because they didn't have the same credentials behind their mm -hmm. name and unfortunately because our accent was a little bit stronger we're not going to be taking it seriously mm -hmm. and so it was it was probably one, one of the most challenging times in our organization's history but I think that that was really also the time where we where we solidified our commitment mm -hmm. and and our vision yeah and that had that had to have taken so much inner and spiritual strength to stay true because it's one thing I'm a community psychologist. So I can say that it's one thing to talk the talk. It's another thing to do the work and, and really stay true to what, what you believe and what the people you're trying to serve are telling you. So 
Uh, tell us about um, getting the men involved and then let's switch and talk because you guys have, you're doing so many other things now. You, the organization has really grown, but how did the men react? Did their wives come home and say, hey, um, I really want you to come to this group with me or did Kaminar go to that? How did that work? So some of it was, was the realization that some of the women um, were being taken to group by their partners uh-huh and the men were just kind of hanging out in the parking lot and so and so um i full full disclosure at that time i was still in high school and so i didn't so i wasn't involved in the day-to-day but the overall was was that it was slow and steady and again like let's give this a try and <laughs> When, um, when basically we received training from Antonio Ramirez, whose curriculum we use for, for family violence intervention program, um, he was asked to train a party of one. And then we just started off with one participant. But I think that what ended up happening is, is that one of the strengths was, was that we never have made our, the participants feel ashamed those who who have used violence and so again you even hearing me talk mm-hmm. you hear me not say terms mm-hmm. like abuser or batterer or anything mm-hmm. like that and it's our commitment to know to knowing that they are much more than just their use of violence and our work also showed us that they the majority the vast majority of them didn't want to be violent it wasn't their desire they had often witnessed it growing up themselves, but when conflict arose as adults, they went back and reverted back to what they had had seen themselves in terms of it, how to deal with conflict. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't matter if the men were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, the vast majority of them, this was the first opportunity mm-hmm. where they could really be able to discuss their use of violence and be able to discuss about it, how their upbringing and the deeper issues related to it. Um, and that was what made the difference mm-hmm. is that we didn't take a punitive approach. Instead, we treated them, we always treated them with, with respect, but we always held them accountable for, for their, for their mm-hmm. use of violence. So we also never allowed them to, for example, say, oh, I was drunk. And so I was, and so that, that made me violent. Okay, no. If, if you know you're more likely to use violence, if you're drinking, then don't drink. And hey, here is some AA groups that you can go to. So again, it wasn't dismissing or anything mm-hmm. like that, but again, holding them accountable and making mm-hmm. sure that they were receiving the resources that they needed in order to change. Yeah. And I'm really struck by the power of language because, because I did have that experience and worked in that space and have worked in that space since. And, um, the fact that you don't use that word abuser, but a person who uses, you know, uses violence as a, as a means of coping or dealing with people. That's so that's, that alone is so radical, so radical. Well, I'd like to shift our conversation and talk about what's been going on lately with Coming our Latino, you guys have really shifted. You've taken a more um, national approach is maybe a way to say it. I know you're influencing other organizations. You've got some new initiatives. So tell us what's new. 
I think that basically what we have realized is that for the first 28 years of our work, um, it was really, again, in the community, and we continue to be, be in the community. But again, what we were seeing through our work was, was that there were just certain barriers or challenges that was out of the control of the families that, that we worked with. And looking at it from a bigger perspective, that this wasn't just focused on the on the Latino community, but instead really uh, went back to ideas about oppression, what does it mean to be equitable instead of equality, and how that really played out in the DV world and what needed to change in order to ensure that everybody had had the same access and to also raise awareness that it wasn't treating, it wasn't that communities of color um, basically were asking for special treatment. It was basically that they were asking for equitable access to these services. And so it was important for organizations to not only say, oh yeah, we'll serve a Spanish speaking person, because that, that's, that's equal access, but instead saying, Okay, we're going to make sure that we have a fluent Spanish speaker, also somebody who is from the community, not just somebody who knows Spanish, but who understands mm-hmm. the who understands the culture, somebody who understands, you know, the impact of immigration, the impact of, you know, even just coming to 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 the U.S. and understanding all the different intricacies that go into it, so that way they can they can have the same access to. Um, resources as well as uh how, how would I say it being able to have actual change mm-hmm. and so with our national arm Latinos United for Peace and Equity what that really allowed us to do was was what well, utilize what we call a three-prong approach for sustainable change when addressing violence and so what we are able to do today is that um, through our family initiative programming, we are able to address it from the individual and family level. So again, that's like our direct services or support mm-hmm. groups. Um, through our community initiative, um, especially through our leadership programs, we're able to increase awareness and capacity of the community as a whole by taking who we call like our program alumni, who are basically survivors as well as adolescent um, participants who are in a different stage and really want to use their experiences in a way to um, benefit the, the the community and make sure that they are aware about family violence and available resources. And then being able to, on a national level, our third our third prong is is through through Lupe, we are able to really address what policy changes need to be made as well as um, what changes need to be made for other organizations in order to really be able to um, work or provide the same level of support as you see for mainstream communities. Mm -hmm. So you really are taking um, what community psychologists would call a, an ecological approach to the work. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And so, and so, you know, it's, it's been, it's, it's been a process and, you know, we're, we're still fit, fit figuring it out, but at the same time, um, as the co-CEO Ruby White, White Star says, is that part of the reason when she initially approached me about the partnership is, is that for her, Kim and Arlissino represented the roots, being ground 
and the community and, and knowing in terms of what the needs were and having that, that connection. And then our, our national work was really the wings of it, where we were able to help to raise the voices on a national level and our findings and the lessons that we have learned over the years to really help impact other organizations and really better support communities of color. Again, not just the, the Latino community, but really kind of looking at how the role of oppression and making sure equitable access is essential in terms of meeting the needs. Mm -hmm. So one of the things um, kind of related to the new work, I think, is, uh, you're, you know, related to your support with the organization is, uh, you know, helping them know how to collaborate and learn how to collaborate. And I'm all about that. And I'm always uh, interested in measures of collaboration. And who knew that you had a resource until I was digging around on your website called Centering Racial Equity in Collaboration. Can you give us a little history about that tool and how you use it? So that one was basically a product of the co-CEO, um, Ruby. And so with her, um, again, she did a lot of work in terms of the role of equity and really kind of looking at oppression and then at how it impacts for uh, culturally specific organizations. So a lot of it was, was when funding first came around for culturally specific organizations, um, it would be set up in, in a way where it was like, okay, you may know, know the community, but you need to have a mainstream organization who has domestic violence and they're going to be, be the primary people because they're the larger ones and that kind of thing. And then what would end up happening is, is that again, using that, um, really looking at the, that racial equity and how, and how it was being applied, it was seen as the culturally specific wasn't as strong, they weren't as knowledgeable, so they almost needed the mainstream, which then resulted from a monetary support or monetary aspect of the mainstream would get the vast majority of it, right. and then the culturally specific would get a small amount, even if there was equal amount of work, or even if the culturally specific organization was doing more work. And so her work has really focused on if you want if you want to have an actual collaboration between organizations, you really need to look at the partnership itself, making sure that they that both organizations have equal say to it, that it isn't just based on the organizational budget. Mm -hmm. um, and it isn't just based on how many letters are behind people's names, but to have a meaningful collaboration between agencies. And so it, it provided almost a handbook in a way in terms of this, these are items to consider when basically lo looking at, at collaborations. I love that. And uh, the word that comes to my mind is, and, and I'm sure you've seen it floating around a lot in the last couple of years is colonization. That's what, that's what that, that is a prime example of what people mean. And it's, it's a word that's thrown around and we don't, we don't often stop to think about it, but what, what you're, what, what that system is saying is that, sorry, you culturally specific little organization, you, yes, you can speak the language, but we know better. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And because it was, and the thing is, is that it's, 
there's so much kind of underneath that you don't even really realize sometimes because it's just considered the norm. Like mm -hmm. whoever has the most presence, whoever has the most funding is basically seen as automatically the expert versus, man, they may have a really good grant writer and a really good de de development director. And so, and so really kind of looking at the root reasons and at how value is assessed and and also giving credit to saying just because it's worked in mainstream doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work the same way. And that's not a bad or good thing. It's just different approaches sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what's next for you all? Where do you kind of see the organization going? So um, for us here, what we call our Atlanta-based work, what I really see is continuing to enhance and strengthen our programming. So for example, some of the, um, we are looking, actually I'm about to apply for funding to increase legal resources mm -hmm. for our participants and being able to have more in-house support for it uh, based on the feedback that we have been getting from participants in terms of you know, what, what, what additional resources that they could use around child custody, um, immigration, just multitude of different factors. And then in addition to really increase allyship and especially going back to our philosophy and our approach, what we want to do is really focus on strengthening our collaboration with men who basically aren't using violence, but want to be a part of the work. So what are ways outside of our weekly programming where they can volunteer to be a youth, um, a group facilitator, but instead, what are other ways which we can really engage um, males who may have grown up seeing this happen or just want to make sure that they are using their power and privilege as a male in order to really stop the cycle of violence. And so that's where we're really uh, looking to strengthen our community engagement as well as our leadership programming so we can strengthen the community as a whole. And then with our with our national arm, they are definitely keeping busy where they were awarded last year. And it was the first time where a culturally specific organization had received a mainstream um, mainstream grant for, for 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 the most part to be the um, national resource national resource center for children and youth. And so and again, it's the first time that uh, organization, because our partners are also communities of color. So it's communities of color who are leading the work that most impacts communities of color. So that that's one thing which we're very excited about is, is to be able to be leading it um, instead of just being seen as a contributor or kind of on the side to make sure that they, they, they can check the box. Mm -hmm. So, I'm just curious, Jessica, did you ever think you would be in this position leading this organization? I mean, I, if I remember right, you were, you served as a volunteer when you were a teenager, if I were, if I remember correctly, am I making oh, that yeah. up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever think you were going to be like running this organization and carrying on your mom's legacy? No, no. What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, it was interesting where I, you know, I, I didn't realize the impact of my volunteer work with, with Kim and our Latino was kind of, you know, during, during that time, um, 
it was a way to fulfill my, my, my community service hours. It was also, Oh, I love that. That's honest. (laughs) Oh no, I'm going, I'm going to be even more honest. It was also a result of my mom making me do this because she didn't trust me at home because as a teenager, I did not make the best decisions. And so that, (laughs) that isn't how I originally started with it. And so, so again, there's a bio that that can make you look very professional and inspiring. And then there's an actual story about it, how it started. Yep. But I think that for me, Kevin our Latino has always been in the background of my life, starting from, from when I was a teenager or basically 11 years old. And so as a result, it has been, um, I didn't really realize the impact of it until I had graduated from grad school, until I had really gone through domestic violence myself. Because mm-hmm. in high school, I saw myself being drawn to what I call all like the depressing stuff. So like drug abuse, um, any kind of, you know, um, it was, it was drug abuse, any kind of abuse, anything like that, that, that was what really kind of interested me. And so I think that I was always meant to be somewhere in social services, but then when I got involved in an abusive relationship during college, that was what really kind of sealed the deal in terms of me deciding that I was going to focus on dating violence prevention. Because the lesson I took from that was, was that even though I had known everything about domestic violence and I knew that was wrong for somebody to hit me, I hadn't really known the ins and outs of what a healthy relationship was. So I missed some some, some of those red flags. And so by the time the physical violence started happening, I I already had feelings for him. And it was really, it was a humbling experience. And so that was what really led me to say, I want to do dating violence prevention. And then from there, um, I would say that it just kind of kept in that progression where it helped guide my, 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 my time in school. And then when I got the opportunity to work at Kim and our Latino, that was where I think I really realized that my strength was not so much working with the community directly in some ways, but one of my strengths was, was to be more behind the scenes and helping for the organizational infrastructure to match and support the programming. Like the programming was great. And so my role was really to make sure that we had the infrastructure to match it. And I realized that that was what I was meant to do. Now, thinking I would be in the position for for, for this long, no. Knowing that, you know, we would be where, where we're at today, definitely not. But it feels like what, have, what was meant to happen, happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find... I find that a lot, even when we veer off the path, you know, God always has a way of getting us on the path he always meant for us to take. Exactly. And I think the part that, that makes me most excited is, is that I don't feel like it's just me um, honoring her legacy because Ruby White Star, she also worked closely with, with Julia um, in the beginning of her career, she, you know, Julia was the first Latina who she saw really um, being respected and really kind of pushing back on the assumptions. And so, you know, she had known, she had known Julia for, for, for a long time. And so 
it's one of those where you see kind of the lasting impact. You know, mm-hmm. one of our board members was a previous student uh, of, of who mm-hmm. is. And so you see about it, how her legacy continues in all sorts of different ways. And so it isn't just Jessica continuing the work, but really right. everybody as a whole. Right. And, uh, you know, and I really encourage everybody to to go over to the website and I'll definitely uh, put that in the show notes because you see that you see um, honoring Julia and you see honoring Sister Barbara, but you also see the legacy that continues of really strong uh, leaders and that really shines so well in in your website and the way way you tell your story. So as we kind of close, I want to ask you the question I ask all of my guests. Uh, When you look to the future, what community possibilities do you see? I see, I see basically uh, the strength and reach of communities of color's voices being, being better represented, being respected. That that is what I think is going is going to be the end result, and I see equitable access to domestic violence intervention and prevention services. Awesome, great. So, how can people get in touch with you or learn more about Caminar Latino and oh. get involved, donate, all those things? Oh, wonderful. So, you know, this day and age, obviously, we have a website. So, www.caminarlatino.org. And then we also have, you know, social media, Facebook, Instagram, all all the typical stuff. But people are also able to reach out to me via email. We always, again, try and make sure that we answer and really provide the opportunity for people to be able to be a part of our work, whether it be as a volunteer, a donor, a team member, Um, because, again, we're stronger. We're stronger together. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Jessica. I really appreciate it. And and I hope this gives uh, people pause and really helps them think about things in a different way. Thank you very much. I appreciate the, the invitation. All righty. Have a great day. Everybody, thanks so much for joining me on today's episode of Community Possibilities. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you would be so kind, Would you please like and share this episode? Tell somebody you care about, somebody who does community work about the podcast. That would help so much. Also wanted to let you know that we have revamped the resources page on our website. So if you go to communityevaluationsolutions.com, go to our resource page, you're going to find a whole new look and a new tool, the Nonprofit Evaluation Capacity Self-Assessment designed to help your organization make informed decisions and take action to build a stronger program evaluation for your nonprofit. Uh, Coming soon is a coalition capacity self-assessment, so be sure and look out for that. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you next time.